so many businesses I've worked in, diversity has meant women and women has meant white women. And all of the sort of efforts and protections and benefits have sort of been siloed into that space, potentially with a bit of an eye towards working parents, but that's usually about as far as it, as it goes. And so I would want white women to sort of recognise intersectionality. I would like you to recognise that you are a woman and you are white and you are straight or queer or neurodivergent or physically disabled or whatever those things are. But one thing doesn't cancel out the other. So for me, I am woman and I am black. And you don't choose to interact with just the woman part of me or just the black part of me. And both of those things all of the time. And those are both identities that in a white supremacist patriarchal society are both downtrodden, essentially, are both sort of not uplifted. I'm your host, Michelle King, joined by Kelly Thompson, and you're listening to The Fix, a podcast that shares the stories of remarkable people who are innovating and taking action to advance equality in the workplace and beyond. There has been a fundamental flaw in the feminist movement from the beginning. When white women liberationists devalued, marginalized, and excluded women of color from fighting alongside them. Feminism was stolen a long time ago, and white women need to acknowledge this fact, or else we stand to perpetuate the very inequality that we're fighting against. In the book, Ain't I a Woman? Feminist scholar Bell Hooks shares how the women's movement prioritized the interests of middle and upper class college-educated white women. These feminists wanted social equality with middle and upper class white men, not for all women, but for all middle and upper class white women. White women activists focused on expanding employment opportunities primarily for white women workers who didn't identify with black women. Fix the Women Solutions were created to help women work in a man's world, but they never advanced equality for all women just primarily white women, who were better able to fit into the white male-dominated culture. The more people differ from the white male ideal standard of work, the more barriers they're likely to encounter trying to advance. For example, while white women face many barriers at work because of sexism, they have their whiteness in common with most of the male leaders. This is a form of privilege. Privilege isn't the presence of additional benefits. Often, It's the absence of additional barriers. In contrast, black women need to battle both sexism and racism. The same holds true for nearly every area of difference. The more barriers minorities face, the less likely they are to have access to the power and privilege needed to change the culture from within. Conversely, people who most closely resemble the ideal standard of what good looks like are in a powerful position to affect change. When it comes to gender inequality at work, there is one golden rule that all feminists need to own. What white women want from men in organizations, they need to be prepared to give to racial and ethnic minority women. That is, understand what the challenges are that racial and ethnic minority women face and take action every day to remove the barriers. There's a tendency when looking at career advancement to consider women's experiences with a unified view. 
The problem with this is that it tends to reflect the experience of white women because they make up the dominant group of women leaders in corporations today. The barriers faced by racial and ethnic minority women are significantly more complex than those which face white women. In the 2010 journal article, Women and Women of Colour in Leadership, authors Janice Sanchez-Hughes and Donald Davis argue that women of colour face the compounded effects of gendered racism. They can't separate the multiple aspects of their identity. And this means that women of colour carry a heavier load because they experience both sexism and racism, as well as the interplay between these forms of inequality. Their research finds that African-American women experience greater negative stereotypes because of the combined impact of racism and sexism, and they're more likely to experience discrimination, prejudice and unfair treatment when it comes to promotions, training, advancement and support. This compounded disadvantage is associated with increased stress and lower self-esteem. And of course, women of colour are not a uniform group. There's a variety of ethnic and racial backgrounds that individual women may identify with. That's further differentiated when you factor in age, sexual orientation, religion and physical or mental ability. The more identities a person has and the more these differ from the stereotypical ideal worker standard, the more likely it is that they'll experience the compounded effects of inequality. To better understand the challenges black women experience at work and how we all, and white women in particular, can show up in the right way, today we'll be interviewing Sophie Williams. Sophie is author of Millennial Black and Anti-Racist Ally, a TED speaker and racial equity consultant and activist. In this episode, we'll share how we can move beyond performative allyship and become real success partners at work. Research has found that women face higher performance standards and have to outperform their male counterparts to prove that they're equally competent. Black women experience this performance tax and as a double minority are also hard pressed to ensure they don't confirm people's negative stereotypes related to their race or their gender. Many black women find themselves navigating this by going above and beyond their role requirements and consistently exceeding expectations. This is even more challenging for black women who are the first or only to work in a particular environment, as they often feel like their performance represents the entire minority group and feel tremendous pressure to perform at a high standard. However, the performance tax ensures that even if black women do outperform their peers, they're more likely to receive limited recognition and praise, making them feel self-conscious, invisible and devalued. Here, Sophie shares more on the challenges that black women experience at work. I think the black women conversation is really interesting, is where sort of the main bulk of my research sits. And when we look at black women's self-reported experiences in comparison to other groups' self-reported experiences, we see that there's a huge gap within the same businesses. And so black women self-report feeling invisible in the workplace until something goes wrong, in which case they become hyper-visible. We see black women reporting a lack of access to mentors and sponsors. And if we look at information gathered by, I think, the 2019 Lean In Foundation in association with McKinsey, we see that there is a huge, huge gender and race pay gap. So we have all of these things that just mean that a black woman's experience in the same business sitting next to you is not the same as your experience. And first, we need people at all levels of business to recognise that. We need people to recognise that what we might have thought was 
our shared experience of working for a business, actually, when we get down into intersectional differences of who we are, your experience is not the same as my experience, it's not the same as a Bangladeshi woman's experience, it's not the same as a Chinese woman's experience, it's not the same as a trans woman's experience, it's not the same as a disabled woman's experience. They're all different. And we as people have been really happy to say, well, no, I don't even see race. You know, I treat everybody exactly the same. And that's not helpful. And it's not true. People don't. And we have to recognize that. So what I see really often is we see businesses making really tokenistic hires, bringing in, for example, black women at entry level or junior level positions on bad salaries, because that's what sort of those entry level roles generally are. And without thinking about the cultural context of the business that they're bringing that team into. So they're thinking a lot about recruitment, but without that sort of retention or development piece. And so what happens when we do that is we bring people in, we bring them into low level positions where they're not rewarded very well financially, but they're also not in positions to have a strong voice. So when you are in that sort of entry level, more junior end of your career, it's not easy to speak up. It's not easy to say, this isn't working for me, or this is hard, or I don't understand this, or I don't feel represented in that. And so we bring people in, we don't pay them well, we don't give them a voice, we don't think about the culture that we're bringing them into. And then what we see more often than not is Black women are one of the groups who churn out of PAYE positions because they report not feeling valued, protected, or respected in their spaces. And so they churn out and they start their own businesses. But because of a lack of access to investment, what we find is that those businesses don't reach enterprise levels because they can't access that same sort of angel or VC sort of funding pool. And so they've left one situation where they can't get an equal footing, only to find that they can't get an equal footing in the same place again. So what businesses need to do is they need to think not just about recruitment, but they need to think about retention. How do we not just bring people in, but make them feel valued, make them feel safe, make them feel listened to? How do we make sure that if you're not someone who is, I mean, I guess it's a little bit less now, but if you're not someone who's at the pub after work, how do you find out that this role is about to become available? How do you find out that this mentorship is possible? How does someone identify you as someone who they want to personally sponsor within the business and so we need to look at all of those things that happen once you're inside a business because they all have a real impact on your experience a 2018 survey by Lenin and McKinsey finds that 48 percent of racial and ethnic minority women aspire to top executive positions compared to 37% of white women. Despite their ambitions, racial and ethnic minority women face more hurdles in getting to the top, as they have to deal with less support from senior leaders, less recognition, and less access to promotion opportunities. Black women in particular have to work harder than white women to prove themselves, as they're more likely to have their expertise or judgment questioned. Even when black women succeed in negative work environments, their achievements are attributed to anything but their individual capability. This invisible barrier slowly chips away at women's confidence, self-esteem, and sense of fit with their organization. 
To understand how to change the lived experience of minority employees, companies need to understand what this experience is. We need to not just hire people who have been marginalised into those low-profit, sort of low-revenue, entry-level positions. We need these people. We need a diversity of lived experience at the most senior levels because we need that, one, to keep things on the agenda because if there's no one who represents a marginalised group in senior leadership, senior leadership's attention span on that being a pivotal business issue is likely to be relatively low. But also because it's better for your business. Businesses that are in the top quartile for race and gender diversity have market earnings that are demonstrably higher than their market averages. And it's much higher than those businesses that are only in the top quartile for gender diversity in senior leadership. So race and gender together make really good business decisions because it's not just you and me who have the same life saying, this is a good product. It's you and me and you know, people with all different lived experiences saying, oh, actually, if we could change this, that would be better. If we could word it like that, it would be better. And yeah, we need that diversity of thought at all levels and particularly at senior levels. One, to keep that talent once we've got it, but then also to make the best products and services that we can. And when we do that, we drive business revenue. So it's not just a moral consideration. It's a If you want your business to do well, this is a good idea for you. In last week's podcast episode, we talked about the importance of recognising people as the individuals they are when we're working to create more inclusive workplaces. All too often when organisations focus their really good intentions on balancing gender representation but don't apply an intersectional lens, the solutions are inadvertently built around white women. Only when we add different identities into the mix, like those associated with race, ethnicity, age, religion, ability and sexual orientation, can we tackle the burden of different forms of discrimination and marginalisation and create interventions which lift up all women in the business. Put simply, there isn't one experience of inequality, it shows up differently for everyone at work. In so many businesses I've worked in, diversity has meant women and women has meant white women. And all of the sort of efforts and protections and benefits have sort of been siloed into that space, potentially with a bit of an eye towards working parents, but that's usually about as far as it goes. And so I would want white women to sort of recognise intersectionality. I would like you to recognise that you are a woman and you are white and you are straight or queer or neurodivergent or physically disabled or whatever those things are. But one thing doesn't cancel out the other. So for me, I am woman and I am black. And you don't choose to interact with just the woman part of me or just the black part of me. And both of those things all of the time. And those are both identities that in a white supremacist and patriarchal society are both downtrodden, essentially, are both sort of not uplifted. But I do have areas where I am uplifted. I am in a heterosexual relationship. I am able-bodied. I am not queer. I am not trans. Like all of these things are areas where I don't have to struggle. And so what I would like white women to do and what I would like all of us to do is to recognize the areas where we don't have to struggle and to see those as opportunities. I am very happy to talk about race because I am a light-skinned black woman. 
which means I understand what it's like, but also I don't have the same level and depth of hurt that a darker skinned person has because of the way that society chooses to treat us. And so we can also ask people to recognize where they do struggle and where they don't, and to recognize that where they don't is an area of opportunity. So because I know about blackness and I know about womanness, but I'm not actively being made to suffer every day, I can have these conversations. And if you can look at areas where you're not made to suffer every day, you can then look for voices that you can amplify. It takes a moment of recognizing what facets make you you, what is uplifted and what is marginalized, and how you can take those areas that are uplifted, which are essentially areas of privilege, and use those for the betterment of other groups. It takes a minute, but you can do it. In a journal article published in Advances in Developing Human Resources, Professor Christine Stanley writes that the lived experiences of black women are positioned with an interlocking system of race, gender, and class. Society holds historical stereotypes of black women which distort perceptions of leadership effectiveness. According to researchers Janice Sanchez-Hercules and Donald Davis, Racist labels people use include historical images like Mammy, Sapphire, and Jezebel. Consequently, racial minorities experience the compounded effect of racist and sexist labels, which further reduce their credibility, authority, and institutional support. While it is difficult for white women to access male-dominated groups of work, it's a lot harder for women of color. White men are more likely to accept white women than black women at work, For example, a 2003 study investigating the issue found that women of color have less access to informal social groups compared to men of color and white women, resulting in lower promotion rates, increased pressure to assimilate, and when it comes to support, mentorship, and alliances that leaders offer one another at work, there's a pecking order that's built to favor the familiar. This is an example of systemic inequality in organizations, as it's inequality that's hard to see, but it's made up in the fabric of an organization. It lives in the informal side of working life, which makes it very difficult to spot. Interpersonal racism is racism in between people. And so that is probably what we think of most commonly when we think of racism. Someone in the street shouting a slur or, you know, being bad to somebody of a different race. And that's the easiest way to think of racism. And that's what we've traditionally had it framed as. But racism is a cultural construct. As the rest of our culture grows and develops, the ways that racism can continue to exist is not in that sort of really brash, obvious, interpersonal way that we've come to learn about. It's in much more subtle, nuanced ways. It's structural racism. It's the way that systems and structures are formed and who they're formed for. It's how easy is it for a black person to get a mortgage compared to a white person? How easy is it for someone to access healthcare? How easy is it for somebody to live in a neighborhood with a good provision of healthy food shops? Like all of those things are sort of where we see racial inequality cropping up now. And that is sort of systemic and structural racism as opposed to the interpersonal that we've been taught to look out for. Those sort of more ingrained societal pieces are much harder to spot 
they're much harder to remove yourself from. But there are the things that we sort of need to be focusing on if we want to make long term improvements to equity and equality for all people. Finally, Sophie shares how each of us can go beyond just being not a racist and practice anti-racism. Well, I think people can start by not adopting this framing of this is a new conversation or this is more important now than ever because it's not. And when we do that, when we frame it in that way, we suggest that there's not a history and legacy of work and study and movement and activism that's already taken place. And there absolutely is. But what we see when people don't recognise that is they try to reinvent the wheel. And we don't need that because I often tell people that, especially if you're new to this conversation, whilst all contributions are useful and valuable, you are probably not the single solution that we have been waiting for for centuries. Like people who have been living in communities that have been marginalised, people who are feeling this on their own skin and are fighting the same fights that their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents fought, when we don't recognise that work, we just undermine all of that and we come in and we say, okay, great. So what we need people to do as a starting point is to be aware of those conversations and to listen to those conversations and to realise that your role in this is not to start a new conversation. Your role in this is to amplify the conversations of people who are having this lived experience into spaces that they can't access. So if you can get into social circles, look at your work circles, look at the sort of spaces and communities and positions of opportunity and power that you can access and look around and think who else is in these spaces. And if a lot of those people in those spaces look like you and have the same background as you and think in the same way as you, have the same experiences as you, what you can do is you can look for ways to invite a wider breadth of experiences into that space. And whilst you're doing that, you can use your existing access to amplify the messages of people who've been having these conversations. So it's not about asking people to completely start from scratch and figure out what to do. It's just about saying, read and listen to some Angela Davis, you know, read some Toni Morrison, listen to what James Baldwin was saying, like, do the work of doing that foundational piece, understand the message, and then amplify it. Don't rewrite that message. Don't take that voice away from those who are living it. And I think that can be really hard because we're really used to centering ourselves and we're really used to, you know, saying, I care about this and I'm going to fix it and I'm going to go and I'm going to do what I can. But rewriting that message is not the most useful thing. Building on that foundational work, that pre-existing foundational work is, I think, the most valuable starting point. Toni Morrison would famously tell her students, when you get these jobs that you've been so brilliantly trained for, just remember that your real job is that if you are free, you need to free somebody else. If you have some power, then your job is to empower somebody else. This is not just a grab bag candy game. The working world tends to be hardwired to support a select few individuals to succeed. The building blocks of many organisations, the systems, policies, processes, structure, leadership and culture tend to reinforce the status quo. 
So this means that when we evaluate someone's performance, promotability or potential at work, whether we realise it or not, we're often evaluating them against a particular stereotypical standard of success, which may not take into account their unique attributes and challenges. We generally take the social and structural aspects of work at face value, assuming that it's too difficult to change things. But when we accept the status quo without questioning if it's the right way to do things, we may be unknowingly buying into the core beliefs that keep it intact. As Sophie says in her book, white privilege or majority privilege is not saying your life has been easy, but what it is saying is that whiteness in many societies is a privilege in itself. Taking action, as Sophie shared, starts with becoming aware of the interpersonal and systemic ways that individuals and organisations can devalue differences and by us each recognising where we may have privilege and by looking for opportunities to spend that privilege. Thanks again for tuning in, everyone. Just a quick reminder before you go that if you'd like to be a guest on our show, then please reach out at thefixpodcast.org. You can also sign up to our monthly newsletter and contribute your story there. If you want to support our work, then please subscribe to this podcast and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get yours. Thanks again for tuning in, and I'll catch you all again next week.